Hello everyone, Alan Mishra here from Vitality Explorers. Please sign up at vitalityexplorers.com for free scientific information about how to enhance your physical, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. Welcome to Vitality Explorer News, and today we're going to start with a quote from Albert Einstein. Quote, I have no special talents, I am only passionately curious. I have no special talents, I am only passionately curious. So on this episode of Vitality Explorer News, we're going to talk about why poor sleep equals poor cognition and lower grades. We're also going to discuss why happiness is potentially a skill and how to increase your happiness. And then we're going to finish with why passion originally meant to suffer and learn a little bit more about the fascinating history of that word, which is used very commonly now, follow your passions, etc., So please share this podcast with your friends and family to enhance their vitality. And please also support this vitality work by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you are enjoying what you are learning. So let's just jump right into poor sleep equals poor cognition and lower grades. We kind of understand that sleep is essential, or we should understand that sleep is essential for our physical and mental wellness. But we often ignore that vitality axiom. Uh, many people believe that they, they can pull an all-nighter or take a red-eye flight and you know, still do well on the test or give an awesome sales presentation the next day. And both of these ideas are wrong. The data suggests decreased sleep will lead to more mental mistakes and lower academic performance. In one of the studies we're going to review here today, sleep patterns accounted for, wait for it, 25% of the variance in overall academic performance. In, uh, that's amazing, right? So 25% of what your grade was is related to your sleep. And sleeping uh, has become much, you know, Americans are sleeping much less often since 2004. Almost 33% report sleeping less than six hours per night. That's a staggering statistic. So back in 2004, that number was about 28%, and now it's about 33%. And in a study of over almost 400,000 people, you can see this stepwise, year-by-year decrease in the amount of sleep we are having. Uh, and that has consequences. Uh, it's, all, it's well known that you know a short sleep duration, which is defined as six hours, less than seven hours, uh, is associated with a variety of medical problems, including obesity, decreased cognitive functioning, dementia, heart disease, diabetes, diabetes, and wait for it, mortality. So I think we put need to put a nail in the coffin, also about the concept of poor sleep and poor cognition. So in this article, we're going to explore a couple pieces of the lead evidence suggesting sleep impairs many of our brain functions and our ability to perform in tough academic situations. So the first study used a novel uh, uh, mobile phone application to measure uh, various components of your cognitive function using just two-minute tests. And this is important because people get a little test fatigue if they're asked to repeat a cognitive test multiple pl- times per day. So they had 181 subjects randomized into two groups. Both groups were instructed to sleep eight or nine hours, eight to nine hours per day for three straight days. They were then randomized uh, into a group with a normal force, fourth night of sleep at home, or they were brought into a lab and kept up all night. Ah. Love this, love this study. Uh, the fifth day, they were then, uh, you know, measured by these phone, uh, these phone application cognitive tests, and the results were predictable. But 
important to review. So on the Substack Sleep or Substack Vitality Explorer news site, you can see these graphs that I'm going to describe to you right now. But basically, if you had the sleep deprivation part of the study arm, your uh, probability of making a mistake and or your response time, and this, these were, the first test was a math test, were, were, were probability of making a mistake was, was higher and your response time was also higher. So, uh, essentially, if you're going to do a math problem the next day, whatever it is, if you haven't slept, which makes sense, you're going to have a higher risk of making a mistake and it's going to take you longer. So, the, the second cognitive test was the probability of misremembering a word. And it was, again, clearly higher in, in the sleep deprived state. This is known as episodic memory. So, if you are given a word and you try to remember it, then your likelihood, especially early in the morning, and they measured these cognitive tests uh, at 10.30 the night before either being sleeping normally or being sleep-deprived, and then they measured them three times during the day, 8 a.m., 12.30, and then at 4.30. And uh, all these at all these junctures, your episodic memory or your ability to remember a word was, was worse if you had been sleep-deprived. And then the final one that they, you know, really measured, which is this uh, idea of uh, what's the probability of making a mistake when you're asked to remember a sequence of squares turning red. <clears throat> so, this, you know, squares on a, on, a, on a mobile application slowly turn red, and then you're supposed to remember the sequence in which they turn red. This is called working memory. But your probability of making a mistake wasn't super high at 8 a.m. or 12.30, but it it just went off the chart at 4.30. So over time, your ability to utilize your working memory plummets uh, in the form of making more mistakes. So the study concluded uh, that there was, quote, significant cognitive impairment associated with sleep deprivation. So interestingly, sleep quality, duration, and consistency, sleep consistency was also associated with better academic performances in another study uh, that was conducted at MIT, or the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And in this study, they looked at 100 students over the course of a semester. And each student was, was then given a little Fitbit to track their sleeping patterns. And uh, this is all the students were enrolled in a course called Solid State Chemistry. And the course had nine quizzes, three midterms, and one final. So um, Solid State Chemistry at MIT sounds like a tough, tough class at a world-class institution. So once again, visit the Vitality Explorer News on Substack to see the, the, the graphs that come from the paper. But it, it, it's pretty clear that the longer you sleep, the better your overall score was. Now, they're, they're tracking people's sleep over the course of the entire semester, not just one night, but over the entire semester. So your overall score, you know, approached the 90s uh, when you were sleeping close to eight hours. And the p-value on this correlation of um, mean sleep duration with overall score was pretty high to a, uh, um, R equals uh, 0 0.38, and the p-value was 0 0.0005. Wow. So that's very statistically significant, showing that mean sleep duration correlates with your overall score. A secondary measure, which is a little 
uh, different one, also correlated with the overall score in the class, and that was called sleep inconsistency. So this is defined as inconsistency in the sleep schedule and or duration from day to day. And it manifests itself on the, on the weekends. If you have a sleep debt during the week, then you sleep in at night, and this, this is also known as social jet lag. So if you're inconsistent about the time you go to sleep or the total time you sleep, your overall score went down. Okay, similar R score of 0 0.36 and a p-value of 0 0.001. Um, so higher standard deviation of average daily scores of sleep uh, correlated with lower, lower overall academic performance. So um, the final piece of evidence that came out of this paper is college students, I don't I think they're going to like this, but uh, quote, earlier average bedtime was associated with higher overall score. And the correlation on that one, uh, the p-value, was 0 0.0001. So it's pretty clear. Go to bed earlier if you want to do better. Um, and sleep deprivation results, you know, results in difficulty with thinking and academic performance. We know that's not a novel concept, but these two studies, I think, can confirm at an elite level that poor sleep impairs our cognition for both simple tasks and for getting grades in a tough uh, course at an elite institution. So stop thinking you can pull an all-nighter or neglect your sleep if you wish to perform well and start today to consider sleep a superpower for your brain. So let's move on to something completely different and that is, is happiness a skill? And that's a question that I've been thinking about for a while and I don't think happiness is a skill uh, but it's rather the byproduct of taking ownership over our daily decisions. And let me explain. I think we're happier when we have agency or some control over our lives, but too often we don't realize that. We don't think we have control over our decisions. Uh, but I, I would argue we have control over many of our decisions, and if we make better choices with our time, our talent, and our treasure, we can experience more happiness. So I believe happiness is related to the development of a variety of skills. So it's not a skill in and of itself, but it's related to the development of, of uh, a variety of skills. And I think, you know, considering sleep a superpower is really something we should think about more often and as we um, want to live our most vital lives. Uh, this could also lead to better mental health and developing the skill of exercising relentlessly leads to better physical health. And if we cultivate closeness, uh, that has been shown in a 75-plus year Harvard study to be one of the most important components of um, life's overall satisfaction. So the final one is believing in something bigger than ourselves, serving people in need, enhances our spiritual vitality. And I think if you take a little bit of a quote from the Harvard study about closeness, here's the quote, a couple quotes actually. Quote, over the years, researchers have studied the participants' health trajectories, their broader lives, including their triumphs and failures in careers and marriage and finding, and the finding have produced startling results, and not only for the researchers. The surprising finding is that our relationships and how happy we are has a powerful influence in our health. And taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care too. And that is what they called a revelation. Unquote. All, all these choices and decisions lead to a better life and indirectly to more happiness. And these are principles that I try to teach through my Stanford Continuing Studies course, which is ongoing right now. In that course, the, the, the thesis is that vitality is a skill and that if you 
you know, develop these skills, you, you will experience more happiness in your life. So together, I, I try to uh, challenge my students to dare to be vital and develop these skills. We're going to finish today with passion and suffering. And again, you can subscribe to Vitality Explorer News at VitalityExplorers.com, or you can see all the data and, and uh, charts about these discussion points today on Vitality Explorer News on Substack. So let's ask another, ask another question. Would you follow your passions if you knew you would experience suffering? That question has haunted me since I discovered the original meaning of the word passion, also uh, known as pasio, P-A-S-S-I-O. Uh, that meaning was uh, originally to suffer or to endure. And the meaning dates back to Christ's crucifixion on Good Friday, also known as the passion of the Christ. Now, that word morphed in its meaning in the 14th century to actually be connected to broken bones or even a terminal disease. Um, it was also associated with mental illness and even episodes of madness. So, specifically, it was, quote, a state, a state marked by a strong excitement, agitation, or intense emotion, unquote. By the 17th century... The word passion was increasingly connected to our sexual desires or impulses. And later that century, passion was actually used to describe an intense, intense enthusiasm by a variety of uh, writers, including Shakespeare. So passion, the word, uh, to this day is still associated with both love and enthusiasm. Uh, and in terms of vitality, we are often told if we want to be more vital or happy, we should follow our passions. I think that's wise counsel, but what we forget is in doing so that often, excuse me, often leads to suffering or the need to endure a hardship. So following your passions, I think, can lead to suffering and or the need to endure a hardship. So this is, this is pretty clearly understood if you're an elite athlete, entertainer, educator, entrepreneur. You, you often have to overcome agonizing obstacles in many years uh, if you're going to follow that as a passion. And, and becoming a professional of some sort demands a, sometimes a decade or more of education to complete all the education and certification. And you have to maintain your certification, which requires more and more testing. And finally, finding and maintaining a true love could be the most challenging passion of all because of the suffering that can occur if true love is ever lost. So I think we need to be prepared to endure suffering if we choose to follow our passions. Uh, and the meaning of passion, I don't think, maybe has changed so much as we might have thought from its original one to suffer or to endure. So I'd love to hear what you think about this uh, comment about passion, the word. Uh, you can, again, uh, sign up at vitalityexplorers.com for a free text message newsletter to your phone every Monday. You can also check it out on Vitality Explorers on Substack. And I hope everyone has a wonderful week and continues to dare to be vital.